0: And the rest of you can take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 29. I'll give everybody a chance to settle in there. Now let's look, let's go before the throne of God before we dive into this passage. Dearly Father, again, as we just proclaim that our prayer is that with every breath that we are able that we will sing of your goodness, help that to be true as we open up your word today and we see man again failing, yet you are still good. And so dearly Father, help us as we wrestle with some of the more challenging topics in our world. And so give us wisdom. We desperately need it. Help us to see man's failings and your, your anchor that never fades, your truth that is last the test of time. So help us to see that clearly today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. One thing that cannot be denied, no matter how hard we try it, is that there is sin in this world. If you've ever watched the news for more than two minutes, it's just one sin after another one death or one destruction after another, and the other one that there is sin and death everywhere. Even this last two weeks, we've had two funerals, reminding us that there is sin and there is death everywhere. And so what we're going to be doing here, I'm going to be kind of wrapping up chapter 9 when Pastor Caleb gets back from with him and his family gone into uh, the Louisville area there. Pastor Caleb's going to walk us through a very important topic, uh, and then I'm going to come back and walk us through another topic on the idea That The challenge that is at Christianity, and I believe the Bible answers this, but it's a challenge that's laid in front of us. If we sing of the goodness of God, and God is good, and He is the creator of all things, He is sovereign over all of this world, why is there evil and suffering? Can God not stop it? What is He doing? What's going on? And We need to deal with that, because that is used, sadly, by many unbelievers as a reason to not believe in God, and I would argue is actually a stronger reason to believe in God, if you properly understand it, in light of Scripture but we need to address that issue because one of the things by God's grace we try to do here is when the Bible talks about it we talk about it and we're not going to avoid topics that can be hard for us to grasp but that we just boldly proclaim the truth and so when we come to the idea that we can't deny that there is sin and death everywhere each person no matter what you believe in God Desires to have an answer for what do we do when struggles come? What do we do when sin comes into this world? Uh, They were two buddies. One of their, their first names were Arthur and Paul. And they wrote a poem about this that was put to music. And they went like this. It says, when you're weary, feeling small. When tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I am on your side. Oh, when times get rough and friends just can't be found. Their answer is, like a bridge over troubled water, I'll lay me down. And you go, that rhyme's really great, and we all whistle the tune. You're going to go, well, what are we saying? Then? These guys just bridge builders? You know, like, what's happening here? And they try to just, the melody picks up, and before you know it, you're feeling better whether you are really feeling better or not until the song's over. And we go, what did we just sing? And we're going to, well, all I know is there's a truth. When there's a bridge over troubled water, he's going to lay down. And so... We ask ourselves this, where we go for answers truly defines who we really are. Because when life comes at you, where you run to shows what you truly believe. It's interesting here as we open up this text here. uh, I I hope you're starting to see as we walk through the, the first chapters, the first nine chapters of Genesis, you're going to see things are not going well. All right, ever since the fall, things are not going well and they seem to be getting worse the further we move along, all right? And so, we're going to read today's passage and then we we need to understand what's going on here. So, Genesis chapter 9 verses 18 through 29. It says, "The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark are Shem, Ham and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three sons, the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began being Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham and the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of their father, told his two brothers outside, and then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, shoulders, and walked backwards, covering the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done To him he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Give us a little context of what's going on here. Noah and his family have just come out of the ark. Everything, if you want to call it earthly speaking, is going great. Noah and his family, off the ark, off of that. God has dealt with sin. The judgment has fallen on the earth. God has preserved Noah and his family. Noah leaves the ark, offers a sacrifice of gratitude for sparing his family. The sun is shining God made an unconditional covenant with everything that is living. The rainbow is in the sky. Everything is going well. And if you're following the tune thing, in my back of my mind, I hear the Andy Griffiths tune whistling as you're just going on. What could go wrong, right? I mean, literally, we only have a small group of people here. You know, is anything really bad going to happen? I mean, really, come on, it's only about eight people here on earth. You know, if any time that we could say, like, we can handle sin and obedience is going to reign, you would think it'd be this time, right? And not only do we have a family that understands that sin is taken seriously, they have seen God's judgment on sin. So if anyone would say, these people would get it, how God views sin, maybe we need to be careful in what we do, you would think it'd be this generation in front of them well let's go through the text here we're just going to walk through it because before we get here though before i walk you through the text here's something we have to deal with we are going to enter a time of a lot of narratives in the bible a lot of the bible is made up of narratives and a narrative is a story and as you're walking through the story you have to understand there's certain questions you need to ask now this is not going to be an exhaustive exposition on how you understand narratives but what i'm going to say as you're walking through a narrative you need to treat it as such. So obviously, if you're in a narrative, you need to say, why is this narrative here in the context of what's going on? And the answer is, is because literally we're dealing with Noah and just getting off the ark, and so we're going to talk about Noah and his family. Right? That's the immediate context. And then you need to ask yourself, why is this in the broader context of the biblical narrative? Remember, in the broader context of the biblical narrative, we've been seeing the two seeds. Remember when Cain came and he... Killed his brother Abel, and we have Seth, the line of Seth, the godly line of Seth, moving forward. We have the line of Cain moving forward, and we have the battles that are coming between them. And one day, from the line of Seth, we're going to see the Redeemer come. And so we got to watch this plan play out, all right. And so when you, in families, even you're going to see the line play out, moving us to the Redeemer, to the point where, at Matthew and Luke, are literally going to be able to list the names of these of the seed moving forward another thing you ask about a narrative is how and where does this point us to christ and one of the last things we ask about the narrative is what are the principles or lesson that this narrative is teaching so let's walk through this narrative i'm just going to give us a quick outline of what we have here so literally we have the sons of noah named all right because the bible is saying that this is an historical event that took place the bible is claiming that this narrative would be a historical narrative This is not a fable. This is not fiction or anything else. You have names of people that are happening here. And notice it says, from these sons of Noah is where the whole rest of the earth was populated from. You see that at the end of of verse 19. And next you see in verse 20 that Noah, he is a man of the soil. He becomes a man of the soil and he plants and he plants a vineyard. He's gardening. These in our minds should go back to remember Adam, the called to be the God has told Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what is Noah doing? He is literally doing what God has called him to do, by planning and growing things. But sadly, the things that God has given us as a blessing because of sin can also become a punishment as well. What does Noah get? He gets drunk and he becomes uncovered in his tent and naked. And to add even insult to injury, his son Ham, in a moment of disrespect, mocks his father. We see two of his sons, Shem and Japheth, showing respect to their father, to honor their father in his father's drunken, sinful state. Noah then comes, sobers himself up, and Noah curses Cain, which is Ham's son. We have to decide why did he curse Ham's son instead of Ham, right, We're gonna talk about that a little bit. And next we see that God, that, sorry, that Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. And the narrative wraps up with Noah dying. And this is how, when you're studying Scripture, you just walk through. What is the text saying? Like, where are there interesting points? Where are there not interesting points? Why is it that Ham does something, but Cain takes it on the chin? All right? And like, what do you do with all this? Because from this text alone, if we do not understand this text, this text here has been sadly misused by many people who so who, I will, I'll be as blunt as this, who say that they are believers in God to use this text for all sorts of racism, for all sorts of things that are not what the text is teaching. But this text has sadly been used as a beating stick to say that there's people that are, if you're a descendant of Ham, you're somehow less in this world, and you're supposed to be someone's slave and everything else, and I would say, that's not the point of the text. And we need to fight against that, because how do you fight against it? With actually what the text is saying. And so... In order to understand this text, though, we need to understand this in the broader picture here, because as the revelation of God is continually revealed, Paul here is going to write about what's going on here in Romans chapter 5. So if you could turn with me to Romans chapter 5, because what we're seeing here, we need to grasp. Now, I'm praying as we walk through this. I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to point out some highlights of it, because this passage in itself could be like 30 sermons. And so what I'm going to try to do is this. Let me give you a little background here real, first, real quick. The Bible answers why everythings have gone south. Sorry for you, those who live in the south, but that's a phrase. Why everything is going bad, all right? And when everything goes bad, you have to answer the question, well, what's going on here? Because why is it God literally has just dealt with mankind, right? With the destruction of, of the world because of sin. And now we've with sin happening again. And you go, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, Paul describes it for us here in Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. He says, "Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, but death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who sinned was not like the transgressor Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come." The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience will the many be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. We're going to see here, and this is a point of the sermon, and it's a point that we're going to talk about. What's what's going on in chapter 9 here is that sin reigns over mankind. It's about as clear as we can get. Sin is going to reign in this world. And the Bible and other places will literally call it that man is a slave to sin. And notice what Paul literally says here. We'll just start and just kind of just walk through his points. Death came into this world through the sin of Adam. It's about as basic as you can get. Sin and death are universal. The effects of sin have impacted everything here on earth. Everything is being destroyed by sin. Everything is running itself down to even more destruction. All because of the sin of Adam. Notice what it even says in the text here, in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Literally what we see here is death and sin are reigning from Adam to Moses, and you go, well, what's going on here with Moses? We'll get there in a second. And so what we have is people died even though they did not know the law of God or disobeyed it like Adam. Because here's what happens. If you're a descendant of Adam, because of Adam being our descendant, means that you are a sinner. Now what happened when Moses came was the law was given to Moses. And here's what we found. When the law was given to Moses because man by nature are sinners, man saw the law of God and what did they do? rebelled against it even more. And so when the law of God comes in, sin increases. But what does God say? Where sin increases, grace abounds even more. Because and we just play this all out. Right now, if we were to get and walk back to the uh, where the kids are being taught, and if you would go in there and you say, we're going to do a couple of things here, kids, real quick. I'm going to take something and I'm going to put it on the table. Some of you have seen this, the marshmallow thing. We're going to put a marshmallow on the table. We're going to tell you all the adults are going to leave. Do not eat the marshmallow. Guess what all the kids want to do? Eat the marshmallow. Why? Because sin is reigning in their hearts. All right, it's the same thing too And I taught. If I walked out of the classroom for a split second, the classroom did not go from disorder to, to order when I was gone. It went from order to disorder. It was as soon as authority is gone, the rebellious action of mankind comes forth. And so the reason why those died, even from Adam to Moses, even though the law was not there, because when Adam sinned, he sinned knowing what he was doing. And what we see here is that mankind, because of the fall of Adam, men are still sinning and dying, even though the law is not there. And here's what Paul says, just like through one act of sin, we have death. So through one act of obedience, what do we have? Salvation. So drawing a couple of conclusions of what do we have going on here because some would say but wait a minute what was Noah's sin did God say don't do this don't do that we're going to see that Noah is sinning because Noah is a descendant of Adam Adam sinned so all the descendants are born under the curse of sin This is why mankind will never be good on their own This is why the Bible very clearly does not teach that man is essentially good If you think man is essentially good, you are bought into the lie, sadly, of many of the isms of this world. Communism and Marxism is of the belief system that man is essentially good, and if you just let man at it, man will do what is right. What do we find out? That man is not good. Man only cares about himself. That is why ideas that are based upon man being good, and man's going to always do the right thing, we find out that no, man does not do the right thing. And so this is why we do not trust in man. We must trust in God alone. That is why we do not look to Noah as our savior and our hero. What do we look to? Christ and Christ alone. And so when we go back to this passage here in Genesis chapter 9, it's interesting here as we read this, you're going to say, you know what What happened here? And when you read the rest of, the, of Scripture, you're going to go, this seems like this happens with everybody. Things start out so great, right? And then what do we know about these guys? (laughs) It tanks so quickly. Look at Adam. Even Cain and Abel, they're going to offer sacrifices. We can't even get through that without killing each other. And you start looking at all of these guys in the Bible. David, sounds like he's starting out great. We could pick on Saul. We could pick on Solomon. We could do all these. They sound like they're going to be the next guy. And What do we find? They fail as well. And you might say, boy, it feels like we have seen this over and over and over again. And As I was reading this passage of Scripture here, just thinking about the narrative, the phrase kept coming to my mind over and over again that there is nothing new under the sun. The same sin that Noah's going to struggle with is, guess what his boys are going to struggle with? Sin as well. And guess what their boys are going to struggle with? And gals as well. (laughs) I just think this male-only sin struggle. But what we're going to see this is the universality of sin impacting all of us. So what we had here was Noah being given the responsibility to point his family to God and what did he do he failed does that sound like Genesis chapter 3 where what was Adam given the responsibility of pointing his family to God and what did he do he failed turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 another man in the Bible that sounded like literally he was the wisest man who ever lived and what did his wisdom Dude, did it keep him from being a man who did not sin? No. King Solomon even fell. So let's just read this and just let these words sink in from one of the, wisest, from the wisest man who would ever live, as the Bible says. Notice where he starts off. Looking at the world around us, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. This is chapter 1, verse 2. And what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, see this is new? It has already it has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of the former things nor there will be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. As we look at Noah and his interaction with the world and we see this, here's one thing that I will walk you through. In my time of ministry, here's what I get the joy of doing. I get the joy of watching babies come into the world and I pray with them and I watch them grow up in their teenage years and the parents come and they meet with me and they say, what, what happened here with this teenager, right? And I walk alongside them. Then all of a sudden this teenager then finds someone that actually wants to put up with them the rest of their lives and they get married and you walk through that marriage with them and you start walking along and eventually if I outlive them or they outlive me, I will bury them and guess what happens again? It starts all over again. This year, this text has just come slamming into my life. I think I've done the same amount of funerals as I've done weddings. There were weekends where I would bury someone on one Saturday and the next Saturday we'd have a wedding and just to go do it all over again. There have been sometimes we've had weddings and funerals like back-to-back going on where the Lord is just basically saying, This is what happens when you live in a sinful world. You'll have incredible joys, but what well also you have. Heartache and sorrow as well. And the joy in the in the pastoral world, you get to see all the ups and downs of it all. And seeing that is when I read this and you look and go, you're right, there's nothing new under the sun. Because what's going to happen? Eventually one day I'm going to go feet first through that door. And eventually one day you're going to go feet first. Either I'll beat you or you'll beat me. Right, I'm trying a little harder at the moment than to beat you in these things. But as those things happen, these are the things that happen when we live in a world full of sin and death. Because one of the most fascinating things that happens at the end of this, this verse here is what do we see about Noah? He's dead but the word of the Lord stands forever. That's why we don't place our faith and trust in Noah. That's why we don't say, Noah, hey, you weathered one judgment of God, let's look to Noah for his art-building abilities to weather another storm. Because what we're going to see here, and one of the things I love about the word of God, one of the things that, again, we do not need more and more proofs, but one of the proofs that I would say it is clear that the word of God was written by God and not man is what does the Bible do? It exposes all of its heroes of the Bible, to their own failures. Because if you were writing something by man, you would have heroes not have any problems, right? Because that's what we do. But what do we see here? Noah just gets done, if you want to call it, leading his family through the judgment waters of God. By God's grace, he steps out, ready to go, and you would think, Noah, you've got this, right? And what do we see happening to Noah? A complete and utter lack, point three, Noah plants a garden, a a grapevine, that is to be a blessing to his family, because what do you get from grapes? Food and drink. And what does it end up doing? He can't even plant a vineyard without without sin creeping in and destroying his family. And how do we see this sin creeping in? Literally, we see this through the sin of a lack of self-control. Point number three, the need for self-control. What this is teaching here very clearly is Noah lacked self-control, and what did he do? He overindulged. He took what God had given him to be a blessing and overindulged in it, and that blessing that he had given him become a curse. He took the fruit of the vine and got drunk, and in his drunken state, embarrassed himself, and became naked. And because of the way sin impacts our lives and those around us, now all of a sudden we see the sin impacting his own son. We see his son getting involved in this as well. Him, then, following his father, lacking self-control, what does he do? He mocks and disrespects his father in his father's moment of sin. Do you see a generational problem that where sin is reigning from Adam on? Father sins, the son is going to sin, and this, this idea of sin is going to travel all the way through. Listen to what Solomon says about a man who lacks self-control in in Proverbs 25, verse 28. These are one of those that I would encourage you, those of you who... This was a verse, by the way. So when I was in fourth grade, it really became apparent that I uh, really struggled with my temper. Uh, I blamed my younger brother, Mark, for being the cause of it all. Uh, but after one time of trying to do one of those haymakers and totally missing my brother, even though as I, my favorite verse growing up was, Vengeance is Tim, I will repay. Um, because I, I used to say jokingly, looking back on it, I cared about my brother's sanctification. And what he would do wrong, I knew that it was my role to correct his error. And I would do it in such an angry, loving way, because I wanted him to see my need for his... His growth in Christ, right? No, I just get ticked at him. And He was the kid, by the way, that, you know, your parents say, don't cross this line? He sat right there. Even to this day, I still say, you were, you know, like, some of this, the Lord will pay you back for. But my mom made me memorize this verse, Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left out walls. You have nothing to stop the enemy from coming in and taking me. And so it didn't, I mean, it was one of those where my little brother would sit there and he would just go like this. And my response, because I was a man who lacked self-control, I had no walls to go like poke away, it's not going to bother me. It would just get a, and I was so bad at punching, he could see it coming a mile away type of deal, you know, and just, and then say, mom, dad, Tim hit me. Uh, I won't let that sit in my crawl too long. But notice what he says. You lack self-control, you have nothing that will stop anything. This really what it means is something happens, boom, you respond. So we have to ask ourselves, how does one gain self-control? Because none of us want to say, hey, I want to be like a city that has no walls. That anyone can come in and do whatever they want to. I have no stopgaps in my life, right? And so what can happen is we hear this and we say, we, we do not want our lack of self-control to impact the generations upon generations upon generations yet to come. So how do we do that? I would say that I think the Bible clearly teaches us this. Number one, we need to realize that we cannot do this on our own. No matter how hard I sit there and grit, go like this and go, I'm not going to. Because like my parents would say, don't, poke back at him. And I went to look and go, look at him. You know, like, come on, all right? But this lack of self-control was there because I realized here's what, at the root of it all was this. It is, point number two there on how to gain self-control is by submitting to the Holy Spirit. Because when my mom sat down on, the, on my bed that night when she said, Tim, we need to work on this, we talked about one of the fruits, one of the evidences of someone who is saved is they literally, by the fruit of the Spirit, is what? Self-control. That's why it's not a fruit of your own humanity, <laughs> is self-control. It literally is a supernatural control that you would not normally have on your own. I came across this quote, and I didn't write down who said it, but someone said... True self-control is not about bringing ourselves under our own control, but about under the power of Christ. Because when you try to do self-control on your own, you will succeed momentarily and then fall. But it is submitting to God. That is why we need to again daily be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 reminds us, I would almost argue that I think Paul may have had this in his mind where he says in Ephesians 5:18 do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery or unrighteous living but be filled with what? The Spirit. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5:8. And again, these are lessons that as we read through this, I think this is what we are to be reminding ourselves of. 1 Peter 5:8. Peter here says, be sober minded be watchful do understand self-control that's what sober minded is one that is control of his own faculties and not only that this idea of being watchful is not sitting back and passively looking this idea is like a soldier watching guarding what's going on around him because the walls are up not the walls are down the walls are up and he understands where the enemy is going to attack and notice what it says your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What did we see here? When Noah lacked self-control, what did the prowling lion do? Devoured not only him, but devoured in the impacts of that devouring world and his generations yet to come. And we see that here, and, and real quick, we need to go back to the text here, and we need to handle just one, one issue here. So chapter 9 here, where we get to the curse that is placed on, on uh, Noah's grandson, where it says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. Um, I would say that if you want to know my understanding of this passage, I would believe that was fulfilled when the Israelite people came into the promised land. And many of the people that were in the promised land became servants to those descendants of, of Shem here as they entered into the promised land. I do not believe that this is a teaching for all time that the descendants of Canaan are to be slaves to everyone else. I think that is a wrong view of this passage here. Um, I think that passage there is speaking of which that there will come a time where the Israelite people will come in and because God has given them that land that they will be servants there. But what we see, though, too, is it even interesting, because that, then that prophecy that is being made here in a way by Noah has seen many generations even yet to come. And I think there's something that is clearly taught here that I think we need to understand, too, is that just like following God has generational impact, so does sin have generational impact. And many times we think, oh, we can escape that. But I would say, by God's grace, we can. Because the two ways of going like this to help you out, that, that does not mean that we sit there and say, well, my father was a sinner, so I'm off the hook. No, the same call of obedience is to each generation. But the impact can have lasting effects. But with that being said, I think when we think about what is this passage teaching us, Number one, I think it's teaching us that sin and death are in the world because of the fall of Adam. And yet through the Spirit's work in our hearts, we can live a life of obedience. But there's also one thing that is said at the end of this text that we need to not move quickly off of. It's the last two words of verse 29. Noah, what? He Noah is not the Savior. Noah is used by God to preserve life. But what is Noah? He is a man like each one of us. He died. I think we need to not move quickly from that. One of the things, again, as I was talking to you during the middle of the sermon about the privilege of doing funerals, is guess what I get to be confronted with? Death. And When you're confronted with death, Uh, Brian gave a phenomenal sermon, you can look it back when Solomon says, compare the house of feasting versus the house of mourning and which one do you learn more in? I don't know how many times I've stolen the concept of that of saying, hey listen, we need to pause and reflect. You learn a whole lot more at a funeral than you ever do at a party. Because a party is anti actually living because we don't party our whole lives. What it was the one thing that is coming at is daily. One of the things that's true right now is you are one day closer than to your death than you were yesterday. I don't mean to let just make you a Debbie Downer, but to let you know that. Noah died. Unless the Lord returns, guess what you're going to do? You will die and stand before a holy and righteous God, and you must give an account. And if you are standing there in your own righteousness, you will find that you are beyond wanting. You must stand in Christ's righteousness and His alone. That is why you must place your faith and trust in Him and Him alone. And this is why one of the things you would go, we need to never get tired of speaking this. I was speaking with someone even this morning, and they were talking about their own sin struggles of some of the people in their family. And like, well, what happens about this or that? And I said, you know what we've been called to do? Share the gospel with them until their dying breath. And that is what we are called to do. Continually to point those to Christ. That is how we are to live, understanding that each one of us one day will stand before a holy and righteous God. We don't look we see Noah's here sin and we see the impacts of it all. And what we're going to see, even in chapter 10 is people are going to be born and people are going to die. But the word of God continues on. And this is why when we come to these things, I think one of the larger lessons in this is Noah, the guy that everybody was looking to, the great guy, Noah's a sinner, and notice what sinners do. Sin and die. And that is why we need a Savior. And I would say this text here is screaming, we need Saviors. The only Savior, though, is Christ and Christ So with that being said, if you do not know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, may today be your day of salvation. On the way out, if you want to talk to me, go right ahead and talk to me. If you don't know, as I heard one preacher say, ask the guy next to you, and if he doesn't know either, come both of you come and talk to me. Because may you not leave here without knowing where you stand before a holy and righteous God. Let me pray and then we'll lift our voices. Dear only Father, thank you. It is by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. May we love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. May we see our desperate need of self-control that can only be found through your Holy Spirit. Help us now, we pray. We desperately need it. We are frail in need of you. Give us the strength we need daily. In your son's name we pray, amen.